Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Nigeria, one of the largest countries on the continent of Africa, certainly the largest economy and the most populated country on the continent, went to the polls on February 25th to elect the president. This was a highly contested election, as it's often the case in Nigeria. The difference, of course, was that Nigeria had a very credible, what we like to call every so often, insurgent candidate, which is Mr. Peter Obi, a former governor of the Anambra state. However, Peter Obi was facing a giant of a political leader in his own right, Bola Tinubu, former governor of Lagos State, and is also known as a kingmaker. The kingmaker wanted to be king, and it turns out that the Electoral Commission agreed and declared him the winner of this last election. Beside Tinubu and Peter Obi, the electors also had to look at a former vice president, Abubakar Atiku, and give him a chance or not, as the Electoral Commission declared the result. However, Tinubu was the winner. He was closely followed by Atiku, and then Peter Obi came in third. We have a set of questions. How did the elections go? Depending on who you talk to, some people said yeah, the process was marred in all kinds of irregularities, and that typically translates into things that didn't work well. Peter Obi's camp have challenged uh, the result now. Actually, at least they've signaled that they will be challenging the result. We wonder, did we read the polls wrong? There were a lot of surveys that showed that Peter Obi was making a lot of headways. And in fact, in some regions, the early result showed that he was leading. But then this is an election. It comes with a lot of parts, moving parts. And in a country like Nigeria, you have to wait until INEC declares for you truly to be sure who voted. Joining me today to discuss the elections in Nigeria is Ms. Amaka Anku, who is the Africa Director of Eurasia, a consultancy firm in Washington, D.C. Amaka, welcome to Into Africa. Thank you for having me, Bemba. So you are in Nigeria, you are in Abuja. You were able to witness the election firsthand. What happened and what is your assessment? So I observed the elections in Kano State, which is in the northwest part of the country. And what I observed was generally quite peaceful. Generally, there were several logistical challenges in, in a lot of the places I went to. The INEC staff did arrive late, some places even later than others. So some places they came at 9.30, some places they came at 11. Generally speaking, by noon, voting was well underway in most of the polling units that we observed. We probably went to about 50 or 60 different polling units in Kano City, in the metropolis. Biggest challenge was was starting late and then to, and then the BVAS accreditation process, which which is the biometric verification system to ensure that every voter is registered and is who they say they are before they can vote. Those devices tended to work slowly until the process kind of dragged along. But everywhere we went, um, the polls stayed open as long as they needed to until the last person in line voted. 
And so, you know, typically I think the, the guideline is generally that this was to start at 8.30 and end at 2.30, but nobody, nobody thought there would be ending at 2.30 because they started late. Late until most people. I would say overall it was a, it generally went well, right? Other than the logistical challenges that was faced. And then of course, as you've heard about, there were challenges with a part of the process that everybody had had high expectations for, which was uploading the results of each polling onto a public website. You were in Kano, which is a Muslim area primarily. You said the process started late, although you said there were not as many problems as we may have heard. You were observing, were you with an international organization or were you observing with a local group? I was observing with a local group. But we were accredited through INEC. I joined a local observation group that is like a local NGO in Kano. And so we all had to get accredited through INEC. In order to observe the elections, you have to get accredited through the National Electoral Commission. And then you can split up. So I went with my own team, but we all got accredited through this local organization. So we'll come back to Kano as a society in a minute. When you talk about issues with um, biometrics and uh, PVCs, this was part of the challenge that people were worried about. People were asking before the election, wondering if any, everybody would want to register, registered, but also on day, on D-Day, if the process, the technical side of it will work. I was in Kano in 2019, so I'm somewhat familiar with that state there. As you look at this process, in 2019, there was a lot of issues with the cards themselves, just the readers and the contingency plans did not work as much. Your assessment, having seen what you've seen, what's your verdict on the PVC and the the technical side of it? So, okay. So when in 2019, what you observed was something they called a PVC smart card readers. Now what we have is a BVAS machine. That's it's It's short for Biometric Voter Accreditation System. Okay, so the BVAS worked well in the primary function of actually verifying voters. There were very few cases where people either couldn't find themselves, people showed up and couldn't vote because they weren't actually on the voter register, so they couldn't vote. There were a few cases of that, and it's hard to tell why that would be. It's possible that they weren't actually registered. It's possible that they had registered in a different state and didn't transfer it. It's possible that they had been duplicates. You know, who knows? But there were a few instances of that. It was the exception rather than the norm. Most people were able to be accredited and to vote. So the actual process of accreditation went smoothly, which I think is different from what we had seen in the past in previous Nigerian elections. Now, I started earlier and I said that Kano is an Islamic state. By Islamic, I don't mean it in the sense that we use in the Middle East. So, and you have candidates who are Muslims. The president-elect now was the person who's been declared Tinubu is Muslim. Atiku is Muslim. Peter Obi is Christian from the South. Did that element, the religion element, play any role as far as you could tell, whether in the way the elections were covered or in the way people projected their own expectations? Not that I could tell, to be honest. So the primary politician that's really popular in Kano is Kwan Kwaso. Is a guy called Rabui Kwan Kwaso. He's a former governor of Kano and he was running for president. He used to be a part of the People's Democratic Party. That's the main opposition party. And he left 
maybe last year or the year before, to join this NNPP, this political party that he's a part of. He won Kano. He won the state. And most places I went to, it was clear that he was winning, right? You could see he has a very passionate support base. They call themselves the Quanquasia. Mm -hmm. And they're extremely passionate, you know, similar to P2B supporters. And a lot of them... Obedient. Yeah, exactly. Similar to the obedience. And a lot of them, you know, we talked to some of them. We did some interviews and the one thing we kept hearing over and over again was education, you know, that people felt that he had done a great job of education. He had provided free education and even paid for a lot of people to go to universities all over the country and abroad. And so that was one of the primary reasons that people really liked Kwam Kwam Kwasa. And they also felt that he was a lot more sensitive to the needs of the poor masses than the others. So... I can't say that there was a religious angle. I didn't see it because what I heard a lot was that people felt like he had been really good on education and on poverty alleviation schemes. And that was why they were voting for him. Given what you saw and the role that religion played or did not play, Mm -hmm. and to hear you, it was not really the driving force. People saw what Kwakaso had done as a governor. Would you say on the most part that the voters across the country transcended those cleavages as they went to the polls? Oh, that's a difficult question. Look, I think religion definitely played a role in this election. We saw a lot of churches get political. We saw a lot of campaigning in churches in this election cycle. So I think you have to say that religion did play a role. But it's difficult to sort of pinpoint how, right, and why, other than mm-hmm. broadly speaking, you can say there's an expectation in Nigeria that the presidency should rotate between the Muslim North and the Christian South. And this is the first time we have a Southern, at least since 1999, a Southern Muslim who then picked a Muslim candidate for his vice president. Right. And so that made religion an issue in this campaign because a lot of Northern Christians felt alienated because usually the ticket is is religiously balanced so if you have you usually have a christian at the top you have a muslim at the, at the bottom you have, you have a muslim, muslim at the top you have a christian at the bottom and usually it's a southern christian and a muslim northerner and so you know the religious the dynamics in this case because the ruling party's candidate tinubu bolame tinubu was a muslim and he picked another muslim made religion kind of an issue and i, I would say it did lead to some level of politicization it definitely played a role here. You had a candidate in uh, Tinubu, Muslim from the South, and his running mate, his vice president, was also Muslim from the South or Muslim from the North? Muslim from the North. From the North. So in a way, we can say this is a first, right? It's the first yes. time uh, Nigeria's elected a ticket, Muslim, Muslim, representing North and South, but religion is... Is actually a common thread between the two candidates, the two, yeah. the two the, on the ticket, the right. two of them. Right, right. First time since 1999. Mm-hmm. Since 1999, yes. So we watch and read reports after report of Peter Obi's emergence, mm. the throngs of young people that he drew across the country as he traveled, mm. he had tremendous coverage in the international press. And he made a stand. I mean, we talked about obedient not two moments ago, his followers. Mm -hmm. They really believe that he may win or they really believe he'll win. At a minimum, they believe that he will change the makeup, at least the way Nigerians looked at the politics. Today, we have a result, at least the announcement of the INEC that gave victory to Tinubu. What gave? Okay, so let's talk about the polls. Why were the polls wrong? So... 
one of the things to keep in mind is that all of the credible polls that were published, all the publicly available credible polls, they were all telephone polls, and they all had really high undecided rates. So the most popular one is the poll conducted by NOI polls, which is one of the leading domestic polling agencies in Nigeria for the ANAP Foundation. And their February poll had over about 53% of respondents undecided. That's, that's pretty high. That's pretty high. And, you know, in a lot of the media reporting, that nuance wasn't clear, wasn't added in into the analysis. So people said he was leading in the polls, but it's really difficult to make any conclusion from any poll if 53% of your respondents are undecided. And if you look at the nature where the undecideds were, a whole lot of people in the Southwest were reporting undecided. Southwest is Tinubu's home region, right? He's from Lagos. So, so that's one of, the, one of the problems with the poll, is that there were, the undecideds were too high. And so it was a mistake to draw a conclusion simply on the basis of those polls. Number two, at Eurasia Group, this is what we do. We look at elections a lot. We, we, we try to call them, try to predict how they would go. And we have a model. You know, one of the things we don't do, even in the U.S., is to base our expectations for how elections would go simply based on what we call voter intentions, right? So what a poll does is it measures your intention today of what you would do if you were at a poll. So voter intentions can be misleading, because there are other factors, there are other structural factors that can impact kind of voting trends. So, you know, like what's the direction of GDP growth? What's the association of candidates? What are the favorability of candidates? What do people rate as most important? And how do they rate the candidates at as those things? So they're different things, right? And a lot of the, there was not a lot of polling on those things. All the polling that was coming out of Nigeria was just voting intentions, right? Which by itself, what we like to do is triangulate across different kinds of data points, not just one. So I think that was another danger. So high undecided, not really enough data to decide what's really that most important to voters. And then third, what we would call party machinery anywhere else in the world, right? So you can have a number of people who tell you they intend to vote for a person if they were going to go vote, but you have to get those people out to vote on election day. Right. So, you know, what mm -hmm. we call get out the vote campaigns in, in the U.S. And Peter B had the weakest party machinery. That's not to say he had a weak party machinery. He showed on the results on, on election. They showed he actually in the end had built a pretty significant infrastructure, but it was still weaker than the party machinery of the ruling party and arguably of the main opposition, right? Although, as, as we can see, he came so close, he, you know, very close second with the, other, the main opposition, which either says something really good about his organizational skills or something really bad <laughs> about the main opposition's ability to keep its own base together. So he came very close to the PDP. Yes. Very close to the PDP. So those are the three things that I would say. So, you know, undecided were too high to draw any conclusions. Not enough data about voter preferences. Weaker party machinery. And actually, I'll add one fourth thing, which is that the poll in Nigeria, because it's still a very new field, we don't have enough data and we don't have enough experience to model voter turnout. 
But you have to figure out how to model what turnout will actually look like. But we don't have enough data to do that in Nigeria. And, you know, we'll talk about that even with, with the turnout numbers, I think, misleading in part because of that. So those are the reasons why, why the polls ended up being wrong. Because we uh, were told that 93 million people registered to vote. Yes. But then in the end, INEX says there was only 24 who voted, 24 million, that is, which is about, what, 26 to 30% uh, voter turnout? Yeah. Voter turnout was low. It's about 25 million that voted. The percentage, the, the number of people who had PVCs, the, the denominator that we're using to calculate turnouts is flawed. How so? 25 million is a smaller number of people than you would expect in a country of 200 million. 87 million is the total number of people who have registered to vote since they started using this register, since like before 20, 2015. Nigeria doesn't have a national ID system. When I say that there's no national ID system that identifies everybody in the country and tracks them until death, right? And so if you register to vote and you die, in the preceding years, there's no way for the Electoral Commission to know that you're dead. Unless mm -hmm. somebody in your family goes through all the trouble <laughs> of going to the Electoral Commission and trying to tell the Electoral Commission to take you off the register. I can, I can tell you confidently that there will be very few Nigerians who do that. Very few Nigerians who go out of their way to try to tell the, the Commission to take people off because they're dead. dead. And so you end up with a register, in my view, that is likely inflated, right? And likely has duplicates. But the turnout is still low, right? Just to be clear, the turnout is still low. The other thing that I want to clarify is people look at turnouts since 2003, right? And they say, look, turnout in Nigeria has been decreasing since 2003. That's also a misnomer. The turnout numbers in 2003 were not credible, they were not credible in 2011. They were not credible in 2015. They were more credible in 2019, more credible today. But what we had before 2023 is a system where you could vote, quote unquote, if you were not on the voter register. You could show up at the polls. And if you were not on the voter register, there was an incident form you would fill out and then you could vote. At least that was in theory. But what that did is it opened the door for politicians to fill out lots of incident forms, they can just say 100 people showed up to vote at this polling unit and they weren't on the voter register, so we had 100 extra votes. And they can add it wherever they want. It was a loophole that allowed a lot of vote padding. And so because you had a lot of vote padding, turnout looked higher. So the point I'm making is that the more accurate the process has gotten in terms of actually verifying voters, the numbers of people voting has gone down. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that voter turnout is falling. It just means we're getting more accurate. We're just getting more accurate at actually counting what number of people who actually voted. Peter Obi obedience uh, crowd were mostly young people. How did this low voter turnout affect his, particularly his, his, his group? Does this mean that a lot of them didn't show up? Does it mean a lot of them didn't have the cards uh, that they needed to vote, even though they were following him? Is there any validity to that? So obviously this is all speculation. We don't have enough data to make any broad conclusions. But what I will say is that P2B is from the Southeast. We had about 2.3 million votes cast in the Southeast, okay, 2023. In 2019, we had 2.3 million votes cast in the Southeast. If you look at some of the other regions, if you look at like 
Northwest, supposedly in 2019, we had 8.8 million votes cast in 2019. And in this election, this, ele- this election cycle in 2023, we've had 6.97. So, a pretty significant drop, you know, over a million, a million votes less. So the reason I point this out, the Southeast is one of the places where the total number of votes cast stayed the same, despite the fact that you couldn't pad votes. And so to me, anecdotally, I would argue that voter turnout was higher in the Southeast than in the last election cycle. Look at it like systematically, but that's the only way the numbers can stay the same because we know that there was generally vote pattern in the past and in most of the other regions, the numbers went down. So there are places where voter turnout would have gone up. Now to your question of, okay, how did it impact the youth? Again, it's hard to tell, but there were people who registered in different parts of the country who were not able to travel to, to the parts of the country. That typically affected a lot of Southeasterners, but I still think it, it didn't depress voter turnout. We don't have data on like how much youth turned out versus, or, you know, middle-aged. But what I will say is that the voter register is underrepresents the youth of Nigeria. What do you mean underrepresent? How? So youth are underrepresented in the voter register. They are underrepresented. This is what I mean. So there's been a lot of media hype about how so many youths have registered to vote and, you know, they're going to be the dominant vote block. If you actually look at the numbers, the UN estimates that Nigeria's population is 60% under 25. 60% under 25. The voter register is 40% under 35. So 40% under 35, clearly, that means there will be fewer than 40% under 25. And yet there are 60% of the population, according to UN projections. In 2019, the voter register was 51% under 35. We went from 51% to 40%. So actually the share of youth, if you count youth as under 35, went down proportionately. For between 2019 and 2023. Yes, there was youth engagement, but on the data, there's not enough data to say that there were disproportionately represented in this election cycle. So we need to do better with data. <laughs> we need a, a lot more data out of Nigeria. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So INEC at least need to be able to segment those yeah. various you know, parts of, uh, of the electorate. We need... We need- Exit polling. Exactly. Right? exactly, exactly. Exit polling. So, yeah. Peter Obi's camp has signaled that they will challenge this yes. result. Yes, mm-hmm. Is there actually space for that? The APC is celebrating already. Okay, so let's talk about the most controversial part of this election. You know, you asked me at the top how things went. The BVAS, the Biometric Verification Accreditation Systems, had Three jobs, right? The first job is to verify voters, you know, check that they're who they say they are, whether it's by facial recognition or fingerprints. Okay. Beavers worked well at doing that. Second job was to both impute the data. So at the end of the voting, there is a form. Polling agents were supposed to input the data. So how many votes did each candidate get into the, the Beavers machine and save it? And then they're supposed to take a picture of the results sheet 
that both parties sign off at the polling unit. So they all, they count the votes, they write the numbers into this results sheets, they sign off on it, and then the BVAS will take a picture of it, save it on the BVAS locally, and then they were supposed to upload it onto a portal that the IREV will now make publicly available, but it was supposed to be publicly available. At least from the previous election cycles, we saw those electoral results coming in in real time. So the BVAS worked, but the IREV, the electronic viewing portal, didn't work. It's called the IREV, but the IREV didn't work. And so when people went on IREV, they didn't see any uploaded results. And that has been a source of controversy because the Electoral Commission repeatedly promised that people would be able to see, that the results would be uploaded and people would be able to see them in real time during or immediately after the election. So that was a primary controversy. Do they have venue? They have, is there a space for them to challenge this? Is that even a possibility at this point? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Every election in Nigeria has been challenged. I can't think of one that hasn't been challenged since 1999. They're always challenged in court. And this one will be too. So Peter B has given a press conference saying that he will challenge the results in court. And I think that's absolutely what he should do, right? So like I said earlier, each political party gets a copy of the results sheets from each of the polling units and they sign off on it. And so they have copies. They organize themselves and the polling agents, they should have ward level collation agents who collect these sheets. But the parties can get copies of the results sheets. And if they don't have copies, I'm sure they can subpoena, you know, they can get a copy from INEC or who, who, you know, whoever else, or they can get a copy of what's saved, the pictures that are saved on the BVAS, on all the BVAS and all the polling units. So they can get copies of all of the sheets and they can do their calculation. And then they can see if there are enough discrepancies across the country that would change the results. And if they do, they take that to court and the court will evaluate it, right? So that it's definitely, that's definitely a possibility. And that's what I think they will do. Well, two questions really is when, when is the president supposed to be sworn in? I mean, does Nigeria has a clear date in the way that the United States does? If so, how quickly does the court adjudicate this kind of situation? The court process takes eight months. The court has never overturned a presidential election. But it does, you know, there's a process for it. It takes eight months. The, the president is supposed to be sworn in on May 29th. So the president will be sworn in on May 29th before the court processes are completed. I that's see. how it works in Nigeria. So that itself, the timing itself uh, poses a challenge. Uh, let's yeah. talk about yeah. the president-elect. Where did he gain his traction? He's obviously a former governor of Lagos State, probably the most populated in the country. Definitely had a high profile. He's known as a kingmaker, having put a lot of his associates in high places. Kyle came from the incumbent party, so to speak. He's 70, so he's not particularly the youngest, but he seems to have his own base and INEC seems to agree that he won. What made him so attractive to those? I mean, he had 36%. Of the vote. Let me put it this way. If you think about the structure of the election favored the ruling party, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how what your perspective is, which is if you wanted to vote, you could you could vote against you could vote 60% of Nigerians could vote against the ruling party 
and the ruling party would still win. And that's exactly what happened. Because the opposition vote was split, if everybody who wanted to go vote against the ruling party was voting for one main opposition candidate, whether it was Atiku or Obi, then the ruling party would have lost. But because there were two primary candidates, in fact, in some parts of the country, there were three. There was Kwankwaso in Kano, right? So the opposition vote was split. That was the advantage that the ruling party had. They had this advantage that you could vote against them 60 to 40 and they would still win. Whereas in any other year, if this happened in 2019 with just two major candidates, if you vote against the ruling party 60 to 40, they would have lost. Okay? So they had an advantage that the opposition was split. And, and that was how they squeaked out the victory. Let's talk about Bola Ahmed Tinubu. So Bola Ahmed Tinubu is the former governor of Lagos. Like you said, he is not young. He has a controversial record in terms of his unexplained wealth. He appears to be very wealthy. And a lot of his critics would argue that that money comes from Lagos. He raised revenue in Lagos. And the rumor is arranged for a way to benefit from that additional, re- from that additional revenue, right? Through companies that he has beneficial interests in. And so that has helped to fund his political aspirations over the years. Some people also think that he's a domineering politician because he effectively controls Lagos and has done so for 20 years. And so people feel like he's too powerful and it can be overwhelming, has this grip, stranglehold on Lagos that people don't like. So those are the controversial negative parts. Now, his supporters will say... That he raised revenue in Lagos, that he transformed Lagos from what was a scary place in 1999 to a reasonably working city that still has a lot of challenges, but has some of the best public services in the country. And of course, his critics will say, well, but it was the capital of the country, so he had all these advantages. That's true. But it's not all the places in Nigeria that had... Nigeria has a pre-existing advantage of being an oil company, but clearly Nigeria's leaders have not managed to use those advantages to make the government function any better, right? How do you see him ruling? At this point, knowing what you know about him, his track record, where's Nigeria, where will Nigeria be going? This is the first election where the person who's been, who's won, has won with less, at least on the face of it, has won with less than the majority of the votes. Okay, whether or not you believe that some of the votes were padded, it probably would have turned out, you know, you had two candidates for the most part, two major candidates. And so whoever won usually would have had to win with over 50% of the votes. Otherwise you wouldn't win, right? Because if you had two major, just two major candidates, you have to be more, have more votes than the other person. Okay, so most... Other president, every president has won with a majority vote. This is the first time you have a president who has, that has not won with a, a majority vote. So his biggest challenge, in my view, is to communicate a vision that speaks to every Nigerian or that speaks to most Nigerians that allows for a positive collaboration towards getting something done. That requires a vision and it requires a clear vision to be communicated and to be sustained over time. So I think that's his biggest challenge. Then you have things of raising revenue. You can't do all of the things people say they want Nigeria to do cannot be done without money. Okay. And right now Nigeria is at the bottom of the world in revenue to GDP ratios. Okay. We're collecting less than failed states like Afghanistan. So Nigeria needs to collect revenue 
remove the subsidies and use that money judiciously. It's very important to be seen to be using that money judiciously with minimizing corruption, minimizing waste, and appearances will matter a lot, to use that money to invest in the critical public services that Nigeria needs to grow. So building road infrastructure, rail infrastructure, power infrastructure to ensure stable electricity. If you do that, you will create jobs because you create an enabling environment that businesses can thrive and then you have jobs. And of course, invest in improved security. If he does all of that, Nigeria will be in a better place and his party will be in a better place. One of the things I like the best about this election is it's made it clear to the political establishment that business as usual is not going to work anymore. Do you think one thing that Nigerians complain a lot about the last president, President Buhari, that they say he was not strong enough in fighting corruption, quote-unquote, in putting order. Does Tinubu bring that gravitas to change that? Tinubu's strength is not going to be fighting corruption. Tinubu has no credibility to fight corruption. I think his strength ha- will have to be driving change, improving revenues. If people see better public services, <laughs> that's more important, in my view. To provide better public services, provide personal safety. The corruption part is important too, but he doesn't have the credibility. It's more important that he delivers other kinds of services the way he did in Lagos. And then he'll be able to leave a strong legacy if he does that. Amaka Anku, Africa Director Eurasia in Washington, D.C., joining us from Abuja. We really appreciate your analysis and appreciate you. Thank you very much. We wish Nigeria the best of luck. Thank you for having me and talk soon. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. 